Genesis chapter 28. We'll begin with verse 10, but just in case you haven't been with us the last few weeks, let me give you kind of a running head start, set some context for where we are in our travels through the book of Genesis. First off, Isaac and Rebekah end up having twin sons. The older of the two's name was Esau. The younger was Jacob. Harry and heel catcher. These two boys born to Isaac and Rebekah. And we're told that Isaac had a favorite. He favored Esau, even though God had chosen Jacob to receive the birthright. As a matter of fact, even with that context established, this prophecy given to Rebekah, uh, even before they were born, that it would be the younger that would receive the blessing, Isaac is still bent on giving the blessing to his favorite Esau. But, as we saw last Sunday, he gets tricked. He gets tricked by his wife. He gets tricked by Jacob. They hatch a plot. Isaac wants to give this birthright to Esau, and yet Jacob deceives his father and takes the birthright for himself. Now, Isaac, upon realizing what happens, kind of takes a step back and says, it is what it is. Esau, though, doesn't handle it too, too well. As a matter of fact, we're told that he becomes so angry with his brother that he's bent on killing Jacob. Now, Rebekah catches word of Esau's intention. She goes to Isaac, and they decide that it would be prudent to send Jacob away to her brother, who lived about 500 miles uh, west of where they were, east of where they were, in a place called Padah Haram, to Laban. So Jacob is sent away. Esau wants to kill his brother. This family dynamic has just completely fallen apart. Utter dysfunction. This is where we are when we get to verse 10. So let's dive into the text. Now Jacob, he's on the run. He went from Beersheba, which is where Isaac and Rebekah and the family were stationed, and he went towards Haran. And so Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Now, don't forget, Jacob is in a dicey situation. Like, first off, Jacob is not an outdoorsman. The text has told us that Jacob is used to the comforts of tent life. Surviving in the wilderness was not exactly Jacob's forte. Case in point, using stones as a pillow not the smartest idea. Could have found a lot of other things. Bear grills, Jacob is not. Secondly, Jacob's wilderness excursion wasn't a relaxing vacation. It wasn't becoming one with nature. Instead, this trip was one of pure necessity. Jacob is in this situation because he's fleeing for his life. His brother Esau is angry with him and wants to kill him, which would carry with it an understandable measure of trepidation. Remember, unlike Jacob, Esau was a man of the land. Not only was he an expert marksman, but Esau, we're told, was a savvy hunter. Esau was used to tracking his game and lying in wait for the ideal moment to go in for the kill. Imagine Jacob that night when the sun sets, Every rustle of leaves 
or a break of a twig. He's thinking it's Esau. At any moment, he's expecting Esau to come out of the darkness to kill him. A difficult night's sleep, you can imagine. Understand, Jacob, in one day, his entire life has been totally and completely upended. As a result of the actions of one day, Jacob now finds himself cast away from his home. He's no longer with his mom, with his father. He's no longer experiencing the comforts he's accustomed to. Though Jacob is headed to Rebekah's family, he's never met any of these people, nor has he ever left the promised land. Jacob's life, his future, is uncertain at best. Well, Esau hunt him down, kill him before he's ever able to make it to Haran. If he does survive, he accomplishes the journey. He arrives in Haran. Will he be able to find Laban? He doesn't know. He doesn't even know what Laban looks like. Is Laban still living in Haran? After explaining the story, will Laban make a decision that he doesn't want to take Jacob in, wants no part of this charade? Will he believe his story? Like the context for what's about to happen in Jacob's life is that every single thing this man knew, found familiar, took comfort in. His security had been completely stripped away from him. So verse 12, we read that Jacob dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, before we look at the substance of what God says to Jacob, I, I want to take a few minutes and first examine this dream. I'm going to talk about a trippy dream. First off, while we've seen at this point in our travels through Genesis, God communicate with humanity in a number of different and varying ways. This is, for the record, the first time God communicates to man using a dream. The Hebrew word we find dream indicates that Jacob was fully asleep and that this wasn't a vision. It wasn't some kind of moment of ecstasy nor was it a literal event that could have been witnessed by anyone other than Jacob. Now, we know that dreams are normal. They're commonplace. Some of your dreams you remember, others you don't. But you should note that this particular dream was different. And here's why. This dream was rooted in the manifestations, not in the manifestations, 
of the neurological connections of Jacob's subconscious mind, which is how you get your dreams. This is not how this dream manifested. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that this dream was God-induced, and thus it was revelatory. It was God's way of revealing something to Jacob that Jacob didn't know. The Lord was behind this dream. It wasn't the burrito he had the night before. It was God interceding, meeting Jacob in a moment, and communicating, as a matter of fact, three important truths that Jacob needed to know about God in this moment. Three truths from the dream. First, the first truth is that God is accessible. Notice what Jacob first sees. We're told that he sees a ladder set up on the earth, so that its top reaches the heavens. In the original language, this word ladder would be better translated as a wide stairway that rose from earth into the heavens. The point of this stairway, this aspect of the dream, was to help Jacob understand that there was way more to his present reality than what he could physically see. While he couldn't see it, God was making it clear to Jacob that there was indeed an access point between heaven and between earth. That there was a way that a mortal man could approach the infinite God. You see, the Lord of heaven was letting Jacob know that he as God was not only accessible to Jacob, that there was a stairway connecting where he was and where God was, but that that God desired a relationship with Jacob, a relationship similar to the one he had with Abraham and the one that he had with his father, Isaac. Note, this dream is the very first recorded interaction that Jacob has with the God of his fathers. Important first truth. Jacob, I'm accessible. The second truth that God is communicating is that God was actively involved with the affairs of this life. It's the second component to this dream. Aside from there being a connecting point between heaven and earth, upon this stairway, look at what Jacob sees. He sees the angels of God ascending and descending. So there's this great stairway going from earth to heaven and on this stairway going up and going down and going up and going down, ascending and descending, we see angels. Once again, the point of this was to reveal to Jacob the important truth that God was not only accessible to man, but was actively involved in the affairs of this life. Specifically, for Jacob, in the affairs of his life. Which would have been comforting for Jacob with all these things considered. Jacob, you're not alone, I'm with you, there's access. And not only is there access, but I'm at work. There's angels ascending, descending. There's a connection between heaven and earth, and I am involved. I'm involved. Finally, aside from seeing the stairway and the angels, Jacob, we're told, sees the Lord standing above it all. As Jacob is processing everything he's seeing, as he sees the stairway and then he focuses on the angels, as he's processing all of this, his gaze slowly begins to ascend upwards to the Lord. The Lord 
was not only accessible, the Lord was not only active, but ultimately, and this leads to the third truth, all heavenly blessings descend from God to man. You know, while there seems to be ample evidence that Jacob possessed a hunger for higher things, and this was no doubt demonstrated by his deep longing to receive the birthright. Unlike Esau, Jacob saw value in the birthright. And, and, and I can imagine that that was only fostered by the stories of how God had worked in the lives of Isaac and in the lives of Abraham and those who had gone before, that Jacob heard these stories and he wanted to be a part of it. He wanted the blessing. Additionally, there's little doubt that Jacob knew that God had chosen him. Before he had ever been born, that he had been chosen by God to receive the blessing. It was something he wanted, but he knew it was his. I'm sure that Rebecca had constantly reminded him of the prophecy God had given her. Like, it's evident, though. Well, Jacob knew these things. Jacob's struggle was understanding how he was to attain the blessing he had already been given. That's, a, that's an important point to understand as it pertains to Jacob's life and really everything that will happen. Jacob's fundamental struggle was not wanting the birthright. It wasn't believing that the birthright was his. Jacob's struggle was attaining. How do I get what I've been given? Isn't that, in many ways, the same great struggle of the believer? Have you ever found that to be your struggle? You know, we come to Christ. We understand that we've been forgiven. We recognize that our sins have been atoned for on the cross of Calvary. That because of Jesus' sacrifice, we've been made righteous before God, justified. We even get that something, when we make this decision to, to give our lives to Jesus, magical, mystical, spiritual happens within our hearts. That we've been regenerated that our core passions and our, our core desires change. We find ourselves no longer enjoying the things we did when we were in the world and now having a new desire. We, we begin to enjoy new things. Something has changed. We have a spirit that's made us alive. Additionally, we understand that Jesus saved us for more than just eternal life, that salvation is just as relevant in the here and now as it is in the great beyond. That Jesus intends to change our lives today. We know that. We believe that. We accept that. We understand that there's a process that's begun in our lives whereby we might yield good and godly fruit. We understand that the blessing of salvation isn't just a future reward, but it carries with it a practical result for today that our right standing in heaven yields for us a substantial blessing, a birthright, and the present. And yet, while we as believers understand all of this, isn't it true that our great struggle, like Jacob, is figuring out how exactly this works, how God's promises will come to fruition in our lives? Remember why Jacob is in this very situation. Jacob had schemed to procure something that only God could give to him. 
Esau couldn't take the birthright. God had given it to Jacob. Isaac couldn't give the birthright to Esau. It had been given by God to Jacob. This was something only God could give. And yet Jacob had schemed to procure it for years, right? We have seen Jacob working and striving to attain the birthright he desires. Earlier on, he sells a bowl of soup to his dying brother. And when that deal gets, gets reneged, when it was an honor, Jacob tricks his dad into giving him the blessing unknowingly. Though it's true, the object of Jacob's desire had been right. Desiring the birthright. Therefore, the blessings of God, that was something to be desired. You got to give Jacob credit for that. But the way Jacob pursued that blessing was all wrong. The core idea behind this stairway and these angels ascending and descending from God, all while Jacob was actively doing what? Nothing, right? God is busy at work while Jacob is what? completely asleep. He's not doing anything. You see, the point of this was to hammer home the reality that Jacob didn't need to strive to attain a blessing only God could give him. God had given Jacob access. God was actively involved in the affairs of his life. Jacob didn't need to help God out. He didn't need to take the reins, to speed up the process. God was at work, and that work would yield a blessing. Jacob needed to sleep. Friend, Christian, brother, sister, the same reality is true in your life and in mine. God's work in your life can only occur as God works in your life. That's not rocket science. It's a fairly simple statement, but it's profound. And let me repeat it. God's work in your life, which is what you want, right? Don't you desire that? God's work in your life can only occur as God works in your life. His blessings flow from his grace, not from your efforts. They flow from his love for you, not your deservingness. They flow from a sacrifice that Jesus made, not the ones that you promise. It's his work that yields the blessing, not yours. So, Pastor Zach, what am I supposed to do? It can't be that simple. Isn't there a personal responsibility? What should I do? The answer, I'm serious. Absolutely nothing. Because when you do, you scheme and you get in the way. You see, spiritual transformation resides not in the things that you do. It resides in a relationship that you have. Your growth and therefore God's blessings, God's work. You know how it's yielded in your life? Through Jesus. It's not earned by you. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus was very clear what your role should be in the process. This is what he said, quote, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know the sole job of a grape and the process of becoming a grape? You know, it wants to be a grape. But how does it become one? All it does is this. It hangs out. Literally. It just hangs out. It connects itself to the vine and hangs around. You never walk by a vineyard and see a bunch of grapes tapped into the vine, just struggling so hard to be a grape. No. It's something that then happens because it's connected to the vine naturally, right? It's kind of supernatural. The fact that that branch is providing the exact nutrients that that grape needs to be all it can be, to be what God made it to be, what God destined it to be. See, this is what Jesus means when he says, your role is simple, abide in me. What he means is that your soul focus, your passion, your energies shouldn't be on doing things for God. That's not a relationship. Shouldn't be doing. It should be investing. You should hang out with Jesus. It's not about beating back your sin. It's not about working through steps for self-improvement. It's about hanging out with someone who when you hang out with him, naturally rubs off. Because isn't it true we become like those we hang around. You see a married couple, and for, for years, right, they spend their days loving one another, hanging out with one another, sometimes yelling at one another, other times kissing one another. And, and over time, something weird happens, right? And, and ladies, I'm sorry. But you guys be, start to look alike. Isn't it true that married couples over time begin to have the same facial mannerisms? And, and there's actually science behind this that, that you end up replicating the emotions. Your face begins to learn the same thing. So you start, like you're laughing together, you're using the same muscles together. So those muscles get worn out, and that's why you end up with, with wrinkles where you do, etc. You hang out with someone. You're constantly looking into their face, interacting with them sharing life with them, and you begin to look like them. You want to be godly. Well, you want to be like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus. What's the best way to do that? Hang out with Jesus. Well, how do I do that, Zach? Well, he's given his word that you can hang out in. Given the written word to reveal himself and his thoughts and his purpose. Not just even in the concepts, but in the act of spending time in his word, he spends time with you. Hanging out with other believers in times of worship and prayer, a communion with the Lord. Abide in Jesus. Now with all this in mind, God speaks to Jacob and specifically addresses two central fears. First, though Jacob rightly wonders if the events of that day, him tricking his father and all of that, may have discredited him from receiving God's blessings, 
that birthright, the Lord. He comes, there's this dream, there's a revelation, a word. And what does God do? He makes it abundantly clear to Jacob that the same promises he had made to Abraham and to Isaac were also being extended to him as well. God says, in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we realize that statement, repeated all over the place, refers back to the seed of the woman. Laid out in Genesis chapter 3, this Savior God would send through this genealogy that would atone for sin and save man. Additionally, as it pertains to Esau's murderous plans and Jacob's rightfully uncertain future, God also meets these fears, doesn't he? I love this. He's, he reaffirms to him. He says, he says, I am with you, Jacob, wherever you go. And yeah, you're going to leave the land, but I'm going to bring you back for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Though Jacob's actions revealed a lack of faith in God's ability to fulfill God's promises and God's timing and in God's way, God was still faithful to work in Jacob's life anyway. To me, the entire story is amazing when you, when you, when you add one more level to the context. Like, consider, God didn't respond to Jacob as a seeker. Did you, did you notice that? Like God revealed himself to a man on the run. He's on the run. Jacob is an outlaw, literally between a rock and a hard place. Jacob wasn't crying out to God for deliverance. Did you see that? Jacob didn't hit his knees and make some impassioned appeal. And yet, God chose to reveal himself to Jacob even when Jacob wasn't seeking. And the point is that that should provide all of us great encouragement. God was more than willing to meet Jacob right where he was. And God is willing to meet you right where you are. Like, and what can only be described as another example of God's amazing grace. Jacob didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He, his actions didn't warrant it. God could have been like, that knucklehead I am done with. Start a new plan. No, God came to Jacob in a dream because he loved Jacob. Even when Jacob wasn't looking. The reality is through this dream, the Lord was trying to awaken Jacob to higher realities, to move his eyes from his precarious situation and onto the providential God behind his precarious situation. In the moment of great uncertainty, and the moment of fear, Jacob needed to look up and to see that God was still there and still at work. In the midst of a rocky and lonely place, Jacob needed to look up. That was the solution and see that God was ever-present. In the place of failure, in the place of doubt, Jacob, you know what he needed to do? You might be able to guess it. He needed to look up and see that his favor was secure. 
Because God's grace was not based upon his performance or his merit. It was based in the solid truth that the covenantal God never, ever, ever fails to make good on his promises. But before we move on, I want to turn your attention to a story recorded in the first chapter of John's gospel. You don't have to turn there, but the reason we're going to look at this is that it has an interesting parallel to Jacob's dream here in Genesis chapter 28. Jesus has an, a, an exchange with one of his disciples by the name of Nathaniel. And Jesus made this thing. It's fascinating. He said, quote, in, in John 1, 51, if you want to write it down, but he says, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That sound familiar? It should. You see, I hope you know that there is a stairway that not only provides you access to God, but is the very avenue by which God's favor, His grace, descends to you and by which your worship ascends back to God. And what's most incredible is that that stairway that, Jesus, that, that Jacob sees has a name. And that name is Jesus. Jesus is the stairway, this ladder in the dream. Like, Look back at our text just for a minute. I want to point out a subtle detail you might not have you might not have caught. We read, so Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there were angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now, the implication is that this stairway, which provided access to God, would not descend from heaven to earth. Did you notice? How would the stairway be established? It would be set up on the earth so that it extended to heaven. How interesting that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to, to where? To earth. To come as a man. To live among us. To die on a cross. That Jesus was set up on the earth to provide us access where? To the throne room of God in heaven. Friend, you need to realize Jesus did more than simply show mankind a way to heaven. He did more than lead the way to heaven. Jesus, we're told in Scripture, is the only way to heaven. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through Jesus that God's grace descends to us. And it is by Jesus that we in turn have access to the throne of God. Therefore, our prayers ascend to him. How amazing it is, we're told in Galatians, that God hears our prayers and responds as if we're a son or a daughter. Why? Because when he hears our voice, he hears not your voice, but his son Jesus. Crying out, we're told, Abba, Father. God's grace descends to us through Jesus and our prayers ascend back to God through Jesus. It's why we pray in Jesus' name. None of it would be possible without Jesus. 
Verse 16, so Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone, which he had put at his head, and he set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had previously been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I may come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, God, I will surely give a tenth to you. What a moron. You guys weren't chuckling as we were reading that. Meaning you might not fully have understood exactly how Jacob felt he should respond. Like the reality is we're told here, Jacob made a vow revealing that he completely missed the entire point of the dream. Like in response to everything that God had just revealed to Jacob, his reply is totally audacious. Let me put it in kind of maybe a, an easier way. This is what Jacob does. He wakes up and he's like, whoa, whoa, this was awesome. God, I'm going to make a vow. If, uh, if you do all of those things that you just said to me, you, know, you give me bread, you take care of my way, you give me clothes, you get me back to my dad's house at some point. Like if you do all that, you know what, God? I'll let you be my God. Now, if you don't, well, we might have to renegotiate. He's literally like, you do all that? Yeah, you can be my God. That's cool. I will allow you the opportunity to be the God of Jacob if you do such a thing. And not only that, but, but look at what, he, what else he says. He says, and all that I give you, all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. Like, well, what is he saying there? He's saying, oh, and also, by the way, if you bless me, God, got a good deal for you. If you bless me, you know what I'll do? I'll give you a tenth. Now, don't push me. Like, let's not go more than, more than double digits. But, uh, but this is the deal. We'll, we'll make a vow. You do all these things, you can be my God. And if you bless me, it's, you got something for you too. A little kickback. Like, not only does Jacob's immediate compulsion to make a vow to God Reveal the fact he completely misunderstood what God's grace was all about, right? Which was the whole purpose behind the dream. Was it your work, Jacob? It's me. But Jacob's promise to give a tenth of all that God would give to him was nothing more than a bribe meant on incentivizing God's continued favor. What's interesting about this passage is that this is the first time we run across this word vow in the scriptures. Merriam-Webster defines a vow as a solemn promise or assertion by which a person is bound to act. 
In some instances, a vow can be a selfless thing. That a vow can be proactive, other-centered. A damsel, right, makes a vow to save herself to the, the brave and chivalrous knight who goes off into battle. Men and women make vows or pledges to one another. When they enter a marriage union, they vow to love and cherish one another till death do them part. Elected officials or those in the military make a vow that they'll uphold the Constitution to defend her, right, from enemies, foreign and domestic. In any of these instances, a vow bounds a person to act to the benefit of another. And yet, this is not the type of vow that Jacob is making. You see, Jacob's vow is the opposite. It's totally self-serving and conditional. Yes, Jacob is making a promise that will obligate him to a future action, whether to, to tithe 10% or whether to allow God to be his God. But the vow, the vow is predicated upon what? Upon God acting first. Look at the text. Jacob made a vow saying, if God, and just leave it there. Like, understand, Jacob's compulsion to make a vow to God in order to prompt God's continued favor and blessing and per per protection, it was not only silly, but the reality is making such a vow, especially in light of this dream, was insulting. Jacob was treating God like he was a shrewd merchant as opposed to a loving father. He was treating God as if his relationship with the Lord was transactional, not doting. Because God's grace is based on a covenant that he's made with you and not one you've made with him, making such a vow and an attempt to receive his continued blessing, it completely discounts, and note this, the sole sufficiency of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Do you need more than that? Has God not done enough to be trustworthy? Now, before you judge Jacob, you should consider how we often approach God in the same manner, this if-God approach. Understand, anytime you pray this basic formula, God, if you do fill in the blank, I'll do fill in the blank. If you do that, you're doing exactly what Jacob did. You're committing the identical mistake. For example, you lose your job and your savings ends up reaching this critical depletion point. How quickly it is that you'll do this. You'll hit your knees and this is what you'll pray. God, if you give me a job, I'll start tithing to the church. I'll make that commitment. Or how about if a child or a spouse gets sick and you're utterly hopeless. You can do nothing about it. How quickly we'll hit our knees and pray, God, if you would just heal my child, I'll never, ever, ever miss another Sunday morning. Even if the Falcons play in London and it's that early game, I will make that sacrifice if you'll just heal my child, right? Or 
what about that girl or guy that you've been totally crushing on, but they haven't noticed you even exist? You'll pray. You know, prom season's coming up. God, God, if you'll just cause them to fall in love with me, I promise you, I promise God right here, right now, I'll become like a pastor or a missionary or something. <laughs> like we do this. Now, here's the thing. What makes this approach, this if God, if, if you do blank, I'll do blank, this approach, what makes that so terrible? Think about it. What are you actually communicating to God? You're communicating a belief that God really doesn't care about you. That's what you're saying. That his favor isn't unconditional. That grace isn't real, but is instead some manipulation technique God uses to get what he wants from you. Like what you've implied through such a prayer is that God took your job away because you hadn't been tithing. Or you're communicating that God allowed your loved one to get sick because you hadn't made church a priority. Or that the reason that girl hasn't paid attention to you really boils down to the fact you haven't been serious about your relationship with him. No, the reason that girl hasn't paid attention to you is because of your face. Just saying, someone's got to be honest at church. This is why such an approach to God is not only insulting, but ultimately reveals you haven't come to understand the incredibleness of his amazing grace. That God does love you unconditionally. Here's the truth. You don't have to bargain with a man who's already giving everything in his store away for free. God has put a sign in heaven that says, it's free for you. And you walk up and say, well, okay, let's bargain. Can, can we bring the price down? And God's like, what do you want? It's already free. Yeah, but, but, but let's make a deal. What deal? It's already free. Well, are you sure I can't just exchange a little work? Like, you know, we have a hard time believing anything's for free. But God's love for you is a no-strings-attached proposition which changes everything. <laughs> Jacob. Though he laid down in a place called Luz, he awoke to call the place Bethel, or Bethel, which means literally house of God, Bethel, house of God. Now on one side of the coin, I can understand why Jacob would react to such a dream in such a way. The language indicates that Jacob literally concluded that his encounter with God had happened because he had stumbled upon some like portal to heaven. Like he looks down at this rock and he's like, oh my goodness, that's the house of God, the gate to heaven. And he sets it up as a monument, the house of God. And yet... While you can understand why, why Jacob might have such a reaction, on the flip side to this, this reaction also reveals a measure of ignorance. The truth is that the physical location had zero to do with Jacob's spiritual interaction with God. Like Jacob encountered God, why? 
because he had stumbled upon the magic stone and happened to lay down? Or that God had made the decision, Jacob needs to understand a few things about me. The locale mattered not. Now, before any of us chuckle at Jacob's superstition, isn't it true many people fall into the exact same fallacy of thinking? Like, for example, how often do we end up holding a church building or a cathedral, a retreat facility, a spot in the woods, or even a pew in such high regard and esteem and reverence simply because it happened to be a place where we've encountered God in the past? Oh, man, I just got it. Like, you're sitting in my seat. You need to move. Yeah, but there's a seat, like, right here. So, yeah, but that, right, that is my seat. God and I, we got a connection. You got, you got to move. It's why people sit in the same place often when they come to church. They're like, there's something about this cushion. Like, when I sing, I sound like heaven. It's the acoustics of this spot. It just works for me. Move. Like, why do we do this? You know, I found it's easy to do this because physiologically and psychologically, memories and experiences so easily become intertwined with our senses, right? Like, we all know that smells like a perfume or a cologne or sounds like a song or a loving touch or even certain environments, places like a school or a ball field can trigger immediately memories and emotions, right? Long forgotten. You hear that song come on the radio and you remember that road trip or that date or your wedding. Songs, sounds, memories, things with our senses trigger memories, trigger thoughts, trigger emotions. That's why we tend to gravitate to these type of things. This is why a place we've encountered God becomes a place we like to go back to because we're hoping returning to that place replicates an experience that I'm longing for. But understand, the problem isn't returning to a location hoping to re-engage with God. The problem we often have is that we return to the wrong location. That pew, that church building, that spot in the woods, none of that matters. Returning to a place to trigger memory is not a bad thing. We just go to the wrong places. Christian, may I boldly say there is one place that we should be constantly returning to. One location we should constantly revisit one stone which we should return to. And that's the one upon which the stairway was set upon the earth which created a way we might reach heaven. The truth, and this is a lesson Jacob will learn later in life, but the truth is that the only place we should be constantly coming back to, constantly returning, isn't a physical one but rather exists spiritually. You see, there was a rock named Calvary upon which sat a cross that bore the Son of God and gave you access to your heavenly Father. So this morning, if you feel distant from the Lord, stagnant in your relationship with, with, with Christ, stale spiritually, please realize the solution 
isn't returning to that familiar seat or retreating to some secret place in search of God. If you feel distant, the solution is very simple. You should return someplace, but you should return to the cross and remember that it was by his wounds that you have been healed, by his stripes that you have been made whole, that that cross is empty because Jesus rose three days later, which means you can be alive forever. How interesting. We have a need to return to something, right? To hold something. We have this within us, a connecting point of faith. God, knew, God, God knows that. He knew it. And he worked with it. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, we read that the Lord Jesus, on the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And this is what he said. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. And then he did the same thing with the cup, saying, do this in remembrance of me. If you're seeking a reconnecting point, you go back to the base of the stairway. And if you need something to hold to, something to look to, a place to return to, it's the table. It's why Jesus gave us the elements saying, this bread, this cup represent me and my grace and my favor that is based in my work and not yours, my sacrifice and not yours. You know, that's the, the biggest problem I have with Ash Wednesday, with Lent, it's not just the pseudo-spiritualism that comes out within our culture, but it's the anti-gospel it represents. That you have to make a sacrifice for God to get closer to him, or you've got to make a sacrifice for God to be purer. There's only one sacrifice that matters, and it's not the one that you make, it's the one that he made. Because it's the only sacrifice God would honor to atone for your sin. We, we make our little pledges. When there's only one pledge that matters, and that's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This morning.